that. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared all the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. And then in verse 36, Jesus continues. He says, Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares in the field. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. I'm going to keep reading. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Lord, again, we just thank you for your word. Thank you. For Christ's ministry, um, even as he taught using parables such as this one, um, there's so much that we can learn from these, um, especially where we have the privilege of seeing the explanation that he gave to his disciples privately. And so Lord, help us as we look into this a little further this morning, um, just to, to go closer to you and help us to um, understand what you were trying to teach us, Lord. And again, we just ask your blessing on our time. Uh, we think of those that aren't here this morning, uh, those that may have some health issues and whatnot. And so, Lord, we just ask your hand on them, and I pray for comfort and healing in each case. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last week, when I looked, we read this, and I just talked about his opening here in verse 24 saying the kingdom of heaven is like unto and so then we just talked about the kingdom of heaven and what the kingdom of heaven is referring to and so we didn't really get into the parable itself this morning I'm going to look at 
the explanation that Jesus gives of the parable. And we'll just go through each part of it um, in order here. And it's interesting that Jesus does give such a clear explanation of it. And when we see his explanation, it doesn't seem like the parable was that complicated to understand. But the disciples, and think about this, it's the disciples, those closest to Jesus, that didn't understand and that had to ask him for that explanation privately. Imagine the crowds that didn't have all the private teaching, all that close relationship with Jesus. How lost were they when Jesus was giving these parables? How, how little understanding did they really have of what he was talking about? I wonder what they thought. <laughs> how, did, how did they respond to these parables? They must have just walked away shaking their heads wondering what in the world this guy was talking about. But we see so much clearer through the explanations and through the rest of Scripture that gives us the background that we can understand what it was that Jesus was talking about. And it seems so clear sometimes. And it gives us insight into things that those people that were there just didn't understand. So, when we start in verse 36, it says, Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house. And his disciples came, saying, Declare unto this the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. If we look back or forward from here, in Mark chapter 10. Verse 17 and 18 says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. And that is God. He says, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man. And we see this conversation that Jesus had with this guy. He calls him good master. And he says, There's none good but God. And so, it's interesting. Jesus' response to this guy, is he saying that he himself isn't good? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you're calling me good, you must also acknowledge that I am God. <laughs> that I am the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. That is what Jesus is declaring there. If he is going to be called good, the only way that he is good is if he is God. Because there is none good but God alone. And by being good, he can then sow good seed. When we sow seeds, when I preach my opinions, there's faults in there. There's 
wrong doctrine comes out of my mouth when I give you my opinion. That never happened with Jesus. The seed that Jesus is sowing is good. It's pure. There's no fault in it whatsoever. And so this good seed that he's sowing is only good because of who he is. If he was just a man, there would be fault in some of that seed. There would be mistakes and error there. But when Jesus is preaching, there is no error. There is nothing wrong. It's perfect and pure. James chapter 1, verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God. There, anything that we give, anything that we produce, has flaw. There's, there's corruptness in it. But anything good and perfect comes from God. And so in this parable, when Jesus is sowing, or the, he's sowing good seed, he says it's the Son of Man that's doing that. The second part of that is that the field that he's sowing the seed in is the world, the whole earth the whole world that's occupied by mankind. And mankind is really, people are the soil that that seed is being sown in. And I spent the time last week, we talked about the kingdom being an earthly kingdom where Christ is going to one day come back to rule and reign to perfect that earthly kingdom. And so this is the soil that he's planting the seed in at this point is the earth where that kingdom will one day be set up. Unfortunately, that kingdom is currently occupied by a corrupt master. And we did look at the details of that last week, so I won't go into that. The good seed in this parable are the children who believe, are the people who accept Christ and believe his message, believe who he is, and they become the good seed. I'm going to look at uh, Psalm 126, verse 6. It says, He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And this verse is just referring to, like the seed is really the gospel message, the, the message of Christ, but we are the fruit, we are the harvest. Those who believe that message that grow up in Christ are the harvest. And 
this verse in Psalms, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed. What a description of what, as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, who we're spreading, we're, our job is to spread the gospel. It says weeping, bearing precious seed. Do we, do we consider the gospel with that kind of attitude? Do we, do we approach witnessing to people with a heart that's weeping? Like giving this precious seed, like this is the most valuable thing I could ever offer to you is this gospel message, right? This is your eternity that we're delivering to you when we're witnessing to somebody sharing the gospel with them. Do we do it with that attitude of weeping and as if we're giving them this most valuable thing that they could ever receive? But it says, he that goeth forth doing that will doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Like, at the harvest, at the end, he's going to have his arms full of the harvest, of the fruit from those seeds that he's planting. An interesting thought from Isaiah. Chapter 6, uh, verse 13 It says, but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten, as a teal tree and as an oak, whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Now it's kind of a, a strange sounding verse, but as you start to think about this verse, and you think about the fall time, when the leaves are casting their leaves, that's when the seeds are beginning to ripen, and the seeds will fall to the ground and be scattered around and planted, and new trees will start to grow. I was starting to think about that. If we're like those trees, and we're bearing fruit, some kind of seed, when that fruit starts to ripen and fall, some of it gets scattered. It depends on the kind of tree. Maple tree grows these little, um, it's almost like a feather with the seed on the end and it spins, you throw them up and their little helicopter spin things down. But those will catch in the wind and they'll blow and scatter, right? An oak tree has a, an acorn that just this heavy thing that just drops. But the squirrels come along, grab that thing and run off and bury it in a hole somewhere. And they, some of those even start to grow from the animals dispersing them. And so the different trees have different methods of dispersing their seed. But really all that happens, all that it's doing is just dropping that seed where it is. And so anything that grows will be more abundant close to that tree. And then as the distance grows from that tree, will be more sparse growth of those from those seeds, right? And that's kind of like us in our lives. Hopefully, 
as a Christian, when I'm living my life for Christ, those that are closest to me should see Christ shining through me. And that seed of me witnessing, sharing my testimony, sharing the gospel with those around me, the fruit, the harvest from that should be most plentiful closest to me. And as that spreads, those who are just somewhat of an interaction should still see Christ in me, should still receive that gospel, but it won't be as abundant. And so the harvest, as you, your circle of influence spreads out, will be less condensed, right? There will be less results as you get further out. And so we see the need, though, in that, to be able to reach broadly. As Christians, we need to plant that seed in the new Christian that grows up, we need to spread out and so that we can have a broader influence and have that influence spread in a bigger area. I don't know, I just thought that was a, an interesting verse in this application. Back in Matthew 13, we see the tares. The tares, in verse 38, it says, But the tares are the children of the wicked one. If you look at Ephesians 2, verse 2, it says, Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The tares, the weeds that are growing up with us are the children of the wicked one. And if we look at this picture, or this parable, and if we start to apply it to the church, and that's really where we need to apply it, is how this affects us in our day-to-day -day lives. And we look at this verse, those tares, the weeds, and he's describing them as they're growing up with the wheat, right? The, what was planted has this weed planted right next to it, and it's all intermixed in the field, growing up together. Well, we can kind of broadly apply that to the, the whole world and we are among the lost people of the world but I think a more direct application of that would be within our church within the churches within the gatherings of believers there are weeds planted among us there are people who make a profession that isn't a true profession of faith in Christ. And they're among us. And when you picture it from that perspective and read the rest of the explanation and how people want to, how some of us in our zeal to correct that wrong want to tear up 
those weeds, right? We want to get rid of the tares to purify the church. But we need to be careful because as we look in this parable, we see that it wasn't until it was starting to bear fruit that they were able to identify that this was not good seed, that these were the tares among the wheat. And so sometimes in our zeal, we may think that someone is a tear. We may think there's a false convert among us. We may think that there's a heretic among us, that we need to get that person torn out of our church and deal with that person. But we need to be careful because that's not what God, Jesus is telling us to do in this case. He's saying, no, you leave that person. You wait till the harvest time and we'll deal with it at the end. We just, you, you might, in the process of trying to tear the false converts out of our churches, you might cause more problems. You may tear out and uproot the new believers that are fragile at that point. And so he says, wait. <laughs> I might be getting ahead of myself here. But in Ephesians 2, verse 2 again, it describes the lost person. It says, The spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. They're the children of Satan, essentially, is what's, what he's describing. And again, in John chapter 8, verse 44, it says, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and says, You are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh, speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. What a description of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And we need to be careful because we have some of those as our religious leaders today as well. It's interesting, when you're looking at this parable and you see the wheat that the Jesus planted the good seed is growing up and we have an enemy that planted these weeds among it growing up together. And Jesus is saying not to rip up those weeds because of possible damage to the good seed. In Matthew chapter 5 Verse 44 and 45 says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. So he's describing to you how we should act towards others. And then he's giving what the example is. Your Father in heaven 
And it says, For he maketh the sun to shine, or sorry, to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And we think this parable, we've got the good seed and this false seed planted. They receive the same sunlight. They receive the same rain. They receive all the same good nutrients of the soil together. And that's how God is. He's giving the lost world all the same blessings in this life that he gives to his followers. They have all the same opportunity as what we have. And it's the explanation of why that is is quite interesting. There, it's a basically a twofold answer, partly to do with us, and I'll get there. Hebrews chapter twelve, verse eleven says that now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And so we are sent, we're, we're given the, I don't know what the word is here, but we're, we've been given to grow together with the weeds. And what happens to us, the, the chastening and the hardships that come with that are there to exercise us, to strengthen us for Christ. It's there for a reason. It has a usefulness. If we just, if God gave us nothing but an easy life and everything came easy, we would be the weakest, shallowest Christians you could ever imagine. But he gives us hardship. He puts us among people, difficult people, <laughs> to, to live with and to deal with for our good, for our benefit, to strengthen us. Um, Torsten was looking at our seedling tomatoes one day and said they looked awfully spindly. And he says, you're going to put those out, they're just going to die. He says, you need to turn a fan on and give some, give some adversity to these seedlings so that they can strengthen themselves to grow stronger. And then when they're put into the harsh environment outside, they can survive that. And that's what we need as Christians. Is we need that adversity in our lives. We need that little bit of hardship so that when harder things come along, that we can withstand that. And that's the purpose of God having us to grow up together with those tares. But there's another reason for that. And it goes the other direction as well. Is that, I didn't look up a, a scripture to, to define this, but it's that, oh yeah, I did. I just didn't write it down. <laughs> Sorry. Romans chapter 1. Verse 20 says, 
For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. When the lost world grows up next to us, and they see people living a godly life, living a life dedicated to serving Christ, they see God working in our lives, changing us, they're without excuse. They have no, nothing to stand on. When they face Christ at the end in the judgment, they, can't, they have no argument of why they shouldn't be judged. And that's God's purpose as well in having them grow up with us. The next verse, verse 39 says, The enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world. The enemy is the devil. Satan is the enemy of God. I already read verses that described him as the father of lies. And he started right at the very beginning. We go to Genesis, right in the beginning in the garden, in chapter 3, verse 1, we see Satan coming to Eve. It says, Yea, hath God said? He's questioning God's word, questioning God's authority before Eve, having Adam and Eve doubt what God has told them, creating lies. Right? And so he's working, planting false seeds, seeds of doubt in people's minds, so that we get these preventing people from turning to Christ, from growing up in Christ. Interesting. Looking at the parable, it says that it was done at night. It was done, the sowing of the tares was done at night while the workers slept. Do you know Jesus doesn't criticize the workers for sleeping? <laughs> we have to sleep at some point. When we as Christians don't see the enemy sneak in and plant some seed of falsehood among us, he doesn't criticize us for not noticing when it was happening. It's something that's done at night in secret. And it's, it even says, when he did that, he planted it at night while they slept, and he went away. As in, the evidence, any visual evidence of this happening was gone. It was, he disappeared out of sight. So there is nothing obvious. They didn't know, even when it sprung up, it wasn't until it started to bear fruit that they were able to tell the difference. 
I don't want to take all morning here. <laughs> I mentioned already about the, the servants of the master that planted the good seed. They come and they ask him if they can go and root up these tares. And, of course, Jesus says no. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 25, I'll go back up just a little bit there. Verse 24 says, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken, by, cap, taken captive by him at his will. The way that we're supposed to approach people is gently, patiently, in meekness, instructing them, just, just gently showing them the truth, not tearing them out, ripping them apart, because when we do that, we may tear up the good seed with the bad. Our, our instruction is to do it gently and patiently. Just instructing them in the truth. Finally there it says the harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. Verse 40 says, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. Now, just over in Matthew, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is describing end times things. He's describing the end of the world. And when he does that, Matthew 24, verse 28, he says, just describing the situation, says, For wherever, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And over in chapter 25, verse 31, says, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he describes, says, and he shall set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left, and then he has this conversation, and at the end of it, though, Verse 46, he says, And these, the goats, shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. It's describing the same 
thing that he's describing in the harvest with these tares and the wheat together. He says, we're going to wait till harvest time. We're going to harvest that and then we're going to separate it. Just like this, the sheep and the goats, the tares and the wheat. The tares are being separated to be burned in the fire. The goats shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. And it's at that point, at the harvest, that he does that separating. And we see in Matthew 25, it talks about the two, two shall be together, one taken and the other left. And I've mentioned before, people often consider this a picture of the rapture, but it's, it's backwards to the rapture because it's those that are taken that he's describing as being gathered together where the eagles are gathered, eating their carcasses. And so this isn't, this isn't the rapture. This is a picture of Jesus' second coming. And we see a little bit more of that. Uh, Revelation chapter 14. I'm almost done here, guys. Revelation 14. Starting in verse 14, it says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat, like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. This is a description of what's going to take place at the end. We could could read more there, but I'm going to go over to chapter 19, and he describes this further. 19, verse 11. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he sat. He that sat on, upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls, that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Here's that same description that we saw in Matthew 24. It's the fowls of the air gathering together to eat the carcasses of those people that 
Jesus kills when he comes at a second coming. He destroys his enemies. That they may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the remnant were slain the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. What a lovely story, isn't it? <laughs> Christ's second coming is not like his first coming. His second coming is after he's given us now thousands of years of opportunity for people to turn and believe. And those that don't do that are going to be completely destroyed by him when he comes at his second coming. And this is the picture that Jesus is describing. He's letting the false converts and the true converts grow up together. But when he comes again, it's harvest time. When he harvests, he's going to separate them. One group to be cast into the fire, the other to be saved for eternity, to rule and to reign with Christ forever. And so there's quite the, the change there, and I believe it was in chapter 14, if I had continued reading, it talks about the blood of those that he destroys coming up to the bridle of the horses. It's a described the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. I think Jen's going to, we'll sing about that wonderful story in a minute here. But that's really what this parable is about. This is talking about the entrance of the kingdom. The entrance of the reign of Christ is going to be like that. That it's going to be a harvest. And those false people, those enemies of Christ, the seed that is planted by the enemy is going to be destroyed by him. But he says, it's, we have to wait. We have to wait until he's ready to do that harvesting. It's not up to us to try to do it ahead of time. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Lord God, we just look at this parable and we see the power of the second coming of Christ is not in meekness like it was at his first coming. He's coming to rule and to reign, to set up his kingdom, Lord. And so we just look forward to that day um, and we pray, Lord, that we would be prepared, that we would prepare our hearts and minds for that, that we would live a life that shows that we're prepared for that, Lord. Help us to do that. 
and help us to honor you in the way that we live our lives today. Um, strengthen us for our week. Again, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 569, 569, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, he is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored, he hath loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword, his true Glory, glory. 